Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and today I'm joined by Ian Rosenberg. Ian is a media lawyer with over 20 years of experience. He's an Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, and since 2003, he's worked as legal counsel for ABC News. He has a new book that came out just this week called The Fight for Free Speech, 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms. Ian, welcome onto the show. Thanks for having me, Nico. So what does a media lawyer do? Well, uh, so my job is is a pretty great one for a law gig. I get to work with uh, producers and reporters and anchors to make sure that everything that goes on air for the shows I work with them on at ABC News uh, is legally sound. So that um, involves news gathering questions about privacy or hidden camera. Uh, It then does involve review of of much of the material uh, to make sure that what we're saying is is accurate. Basically, I'm sometimes an extra editor for accuracy, um, and to sometimes push, you know, what's the basis for this uh, allegation here? Do we have uh, documentation to support that? Uh, and then I also uh, engage in fair use conversations um, and FCC regulatory work. So uh, it's it's very varied and it's very fast paced. So are you working like around the clock, or do you have specific shows that you work on? You know. 24-hour news cycle, shows late at night, shows early in the morning. And obviously some of these some of these are breaking news, so they need you like right then and there, I'm assuming. That's right. Um, so I do have shows that I work with, particularly uh, I've worked with Nightline since uh, the post-Ted Koppel uh, days uh, when it was relaunched by James Goldston. Uh, I've been their lawyer. And so I'm on email every night working with the show um, before it airs. What got you into this? Uh, Was this something you went to law school knowing you wanted to do? Sort of, yeah. You know, I was a theater major in college and um, took a First Amendment uh, class from Professor Donald Downs, who I know is a a friend of fire. uh, Yes, very good friend. uh, And a noted uh, First Amendment expert. Uh, And I just took it uh, because I was interested. I I had uh, no thought that that was going to become my passion. Uh, And after taking a a couple of classes uh, with Downs, uh, I applied to law school and theater school at the same time, got into both, but ended up going to law school. And it was with the idea of my drama advisor at the time said, I think it's a wonderful path for you as long as you promise me you won't be a lawyer. Uh, So I I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I I thought that I wanted to do something uh, in connection with working with the media and the arts and, and protecting free speech. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, uh, after graduating from Cornell, uh, well, I clerked, um, but um, in the summer before and then after clerking, uh, I worked with Floyd Abrams at Cahill Gordon, um, and that uh, set me on the path uh, to be uh, a First Amendment lawyer. You know, my uh, interest in the First Amendment, well, not I shouldn't say First Amendment because the First Amendment didn't exist at the time, but my interest in free speech came in fifth grade through theater when I was in a play on the trial of John Peter's anger. Uh, And that was really cool and um, really taught me a lot about the history of free speech in, well, then the colonies, but what was soon to become 
America. I want to talk about your book, of course, which again came out this week, uh, The Fight for Free Speech. And you focus on 10 different cases that speak to 10 different types of issues related to our First Amendment freedoms. And I they're, they're disparate chapters, obviously, and, and I think for some of our listeners, many of whom teach free speech and First Amendment courses uh, in college or in high school, uh, this book would be particularly useful for them uh, as kind of case studies into some of these issues. But I want to start by talking about some of the issues that you discuss in your book that might also have a connection with some of the work that you do as a media lawyer. Uh, and I want to start with your discussion of defamation law and New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, I once interviewed way back when, maybe three or four years ago on this podcast, Martin Garbus, and uh, he's kind of a controversial figure in the media law landscape because he takes plaintiffs in defamation cases. And there are, there, you know, there's a network of lawyers who refuse to take plaintiffs in defamation cases because uh, defamation claims are media lawyers, can be media lawyers' greatest frustration. So can you talk a little bit about the controversies surrounding defamation law, and in particular in recent years when then-President Donald Trump was talking about opening up libel laws? What, what was the danger that you saw in that? Well, first of all, thanks for um, saying that you think the book would be good for media law classes. Uh, I, I agree. I teach uh, media law to at Brooklyn College to um, mass communications graduate students. And one of the things I found was that there really was no book that discussed free speech and free press issues that is written for non-lawyers. Um, there are textbooks and there are very wise books from esteemed people in the field. Um, if you're you know, heavily immersed in the topic, but this is trying to be a user's guide to understanding these issues for smart non-lawyers. It's the kind of people I talk to every day at work, and the spectrum of 10 cases that I raised um, are supposed to uh, give you a, a thorough understanding of the First Amendment in, in one single book. But And, the, and the stories behind the cases. I mean, you, you. you really go into detail about the individual figures who are involved in these cases. I mean, you're, when you're talking about the Schenck and Abrams cases um, early on in America's you know, First Amendment jurisprudence, you really go into kind of the anarchists who uh, were at the heart of those cases and the animating factors that led to them uh, writing the leaflets that then ultimately resulted in them going to prison uh, for their protests of World War I and America's involvement in uh, trying to thwart the Bolshevik re revolution. Yes, and that's really the fight part of the fight for free speech. You know, what um, you don't learn in law school is you learn the rules of law and you learn the cases in law school, but you don't really talk about the real people behind the stories uh, that led up to their challenging their uh, free speech rights all the way to the Supreme Court. And as you say in Abrams, uh, I did not know much at all about Molly Steimer, who was a very young immigrant anarchist uh, teenager um, when she threw out leaflets in Yiddish from the Lower East Side to protest World War I, uh, America's involvement uh, against Russia in World War I. And I think, you know, one of the goals I have, besides thinking these stories are particularly interesting and, and compelling, one of the goals I have for this book is for people to see themselves in these fights. Now, not all of these people are, are heroes. Uh, I think they're pioneers is the term, because some of them are 
are uh, not great people. Um, but uh, I think everyone can start to identify with the people behind these stories. Uh, and I, I think that really illuminates the rights that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I like the story uh, that you, you talk about uh, Larry Flint and Jerry F- Falwell, you know, of course, that famous case, uh, Hustler v. Falwell, in which, <laughs> um, you know, the, the noted pornographer Larry Flint parodied uh, Jerry Falwell uh, and his and, and his mother, and but they became friends at the end. I didn't know that. That's actually a quirk, a, a historical fact that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, uh, it's it's fascinating. They are really two apocalyptic figures um, in this battle over the right to parody. And uh, I, I talk about what that means for uh, Trump's attacks on Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. Um, but but they, those two figures, you know, I say, you know, when they were sitting at the Supreme Court, uh, Larry Flint and Falwell, Jerry Falwell, were both smiling. Um, Falwell, because he, you know, knew in his heart that everything he was doing was good and um flint because he knew in his heart that he was sort of up to no good and love <laughs> um but yeah they, those two crazy uh kids became friends in the end and uh there are a lot of surprising sort of um story twists i think uh, in this book that people will hopefully find entertaining as well um yeah it, it, to go back to your libel question, which of course I yeah I, I was going to try about. and get back to that we were getting yeah. on tangents. Um, so to go back to your libel question, you know the the concept of the, of the book is that each chapter begins with a contemporary uh, question, a, a burning First Amendment controversy of today, and then discusses the historical case that answers that question. So the question with libel is what um, Trump has said, and to uh, in a different way, uh, Justice Thomas has said um, that you know Trump saying that we need to take a strong look at libel and, you know, this misconception that's out there that the media can just lie and get away with it. Um, and and it's something about libel law um, makes it impossible uh, for, um, you know, plaintiffs to win a, a case against the media. And that is just, you know, absolutely not true. If that was true, I wouldn't have a job um, because I am part of the protection uh, against libel working with our excellent journalists. Um, And so the story that I tell about that is uh, the New York Times versus Sullivan case, um, which involves uh, civil rights heroes of the past, Dr. King, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Fred Shuttlesworth, um, Reverend C. uh, and Lowry. And, you know, their ultimate victory at the Supreme Court, which led to the press winning the right to criticize public officials and make mistakes. So one of the things I hope this story um, it will do is to encourage people to defend rather than disdain the press. Um, but it also actually explains what the actual malice standard really means. And, and it's, it's this ability to make mistakes, but not to lie or uh, turn a blind eye to the truth. And prior restraints, also something that I imagine you deal with a lot in practicing media law. Yeah, and the current event that you use here as the hook to get into the Pentagon Papers case is the 60 Minutes interview that Stormy Dan- Daniels had with Anderson Cooper and Donald Trump's then subsequent efforts to get that st- prevent that story from getting aired. Can you talk a little bit about how, as a media lawyer, you all think about prior restraints? We, uh, you know, Amateur First Amendment experts, um, you know, often think of the prior restraints as the one thing that, you know, going back to the founding of America, the founders were worried about. But, you know, what can someone or what can the government prevent from 
uh, being published prior to it being published. Right. So um, as, as you know, but maybe not all of your listeners, um, the Pentagon Papers case, um, which really pitted uh, Nixon against Daniel Ellsberg, who had leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times and ultimately the Post and other papers, um, you know, really at, now we think, oh, of course, the founders up till today meant that there could be no efforts to stop the presses, um, that the media would always be allowed to publish and then suffer any consequences, uh, but that they shouldn't be stopped for publication. But at the time of the Pentagon Papers, uh, really, um, that question was in doubt. This was during the war. The papers were about, although a historical document did contain uh, arguably references to um, elements of the current uh, conflict and the current uh, battles. Um, and so it really was a question of whether, the, the, and the papers did stop. Uh, the New York Times uh, and the Washington Post were prevented um, from publishing. And um, the question I talk about at oral argument really turned at oral argument on one question on, on whether or not uh, they could cobble together uh, a majority to uh, protect uh, to protect the press. Um, so the rule is that um, except under the most um, extreme circumstances when there would really be um, a direct uh, imminent threat to um, specific harm, you know, the, the, the example given, you know, loss of lives on the battlefield, but concrete, um, immediate and direct um, harm uh, is the only excuse um, for stopping the presses. Um, for preventing uh, publication. So uh, on the one hand, we have this very bedrock principle that if you know you can't get a prior restraint about a war documents in the middle of a conflict, as one would think that you, you can never get a, a prior restraint. Um, however, um, you know the way our courts work um, is that just because the Supreme Court has a rule doesn't mean that the lower courts follow that rule. And so while you win these cases on appeal, um, you don't necessarily win them uh, initially at the lower level. And although I haven't had any experience with prior restraints in my uh, 17 plus years at ABC News, when I worked at the law firm with, you know, as I mentioned before, legendary um, attorney Floyd Abrams, one of the things we put together was a prior restraint compendium every year of prior restraints that were from all over the country that were improperly granted um, and uh, eventually overturned, but to keep people's awareness of this continuing threat. And um, so in the book, I do talk about um, uh, uh, Trump's uh, initial efforts um, and potential, the rumors of potential efforts um, for him to try and stop Stormy Daniels from speaking uh, on 60 Minutes to Anderson Cooper. Um, but then, you know, since the book came out, we had actual examples uh, of Trump um, trying to stop uh, the book from uh, Mary Trump uh, through his family um, and uh, trying to stop the Bolton book. Um, and one of the things when I was And the Cohen book, right? Uh, his 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 former lawyer uh, what's his first name cohen <laughs> he's been out yeah. of office for a month now and i'm starting to forget the, yeah, the people that he surrounded himself some of these things are are happy uh, i'm happy to forget but um yeah so so you know the trump uh you know administration and and surrogates have certainly tried to bring uh bring back um a, a more um uh, disturbing, you know, view of uh, prior restraint. Uh, and so I think it's something that we need to really know about um, and not think this is a, a concern of the past. Um, when I listened to the hearing in the Bolton book, I was I was very disturbed that the, the judge in the case, although he ultimately ruled that there could be no longer 
there could be no prior restraint against the Bolton book. Uh, he did basically on the, the non-legal basis that the horse has left the barn, that too many copies had already been sort of internationally sent out into uh, critics. He did not mention the Pentagon Papers case in the entire oral argument. And that, um, you know, was although it was a victory in some sense for uh, a free press, um, it was a disturbing victory. And um, I, I think we need to be sort of eternally vigilant to understanding the importance of that right. I wonder how much it costs to uh, ensure those books uh, before they go to press, be, just because you know something like the Bolton book is going to get uh, challenged, uh, either with an attempt at a prior restraint or defamation or something else, you know, you're, you're, you know, when you buy the insurance that you're going to get paid, you're going to pay for that defense. But when you were doing the Floyd Abrams compendium on prior restraints and you were looking at the national landscape for them, how many cases were you seeing? I mean, when I think of prior restraints, I almost think of them as being sort of archaic and free in the free speech world. Like, we used to have banned books all the time. Now they're more often challenged rather than banned. And I, I sort of think of prior restraints that way is that the law was settled, but it sounds like it's not. Are we talking, you know, a handful of cases, dozens of cases, hundreds of cases? Uh, we're talking hundreds. I mean, this is now 20 years ago, but I believe Cahill still puts out um, this uh, this guide. We're talking about hundreds of cases um, that the issue gets raised. Uh, and then we're talking about more than a handful in which some level of prior restraint um, is granted. For example, there was an initial New York uh, trial court that granted a prior restraint of the Mary Trump book, which was then overturned. So, you know, most of the general public just hears like, oh, there's some threat to the book. Oh, no, it's going to be published. But, you know, actually underneath there, there are cases in which um, you know, the wrong decision is being made. And so, um, you know, one of the other things I, I want people to take out of this book is that, you know, I'm focusing on 10 Supreme Court cases because that is the clearest way of distilling what First Amendment law is. And I, I particularly chose cases where we can say this case really defines the area and this right. Um, but actually, Free speech is a grassroots activity that happens every day. It happens in our schools and our churches and our synagogues and our mosques and at our community boards. And that uh, we need to know what our rights are to make uh, to take action on the ground level before uh, the years it would take to get something uh, changed on appeal. And I do want to get, turn to the schools in a moment, but before we do that, I, I, before we leave media law, I want to ask you about. Uh, Saturday Night Live, the networks, and the so-called dirty words. Uh, in your book, you talk about uh, the George Carlin case. You know, it's been many decades since that Carlin case. It seems as though the words that were used there, uh, the profanities that were used there, are you know they're still considered profanities in many cases, but they don't have the same sort of bite that they did back in the seventies. How how in media law, or uh, you know, when you're taking a look. At, at segments, do you think about uh, what is profane, what is not, what could get you in trouble with the FCC these days? Well, yeah. So the the issue is um, that I focus on is the contemporary question uh, in the book is when Samantha B used the C word to describe Ivanka Trump in connection with um, you know the Trump administration's child. Um, I was going to say child immigration policy, but, but you know, taking children away from uh, their parents um, uh, who were trying to seek asylum in the United States. Uh, so she used the C word uh, and people freaked out. 
Um, and the question is, you know, what can you say on television and, and what's, uh, and radio? And, and there's a couple of surprising, um, things about that, as you were alluding to. Um, first, it's that, yes, George Carlin's seven dirty word monologue from the seventies still defines today largely what can't be, uh, what can't, well, uh, what can't not be said on, on broadcast television and radio. Um, and I, I, it's very fun to to go back and talk about the subversive um, uh, fun that uh, Carlin had with his monologues. He talks about how, you know, Lenny Bruce was crucified um, for playing with language and I became a success because of it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so we, we have this case, we, which leads to the Pacifica case, which really defines um, what can and cannot be said on um broadcast television and radio for most of the day. There is this window of time. There's a safe harbor period at, at the end of the day and in the morning where you can have more adult content. Uh, but we also have this, um, but that doesn't answer then like, so if you can't say words like that, how does Samantha B get away with it? Uh, and the unsatisfying answer is because cable is different. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so because of sort of historical anomalies that frankly uh, don't make a lot of sense, um, we have this uh, bifurcation of what can be said on cable and what uh, can be said um, on the rest of broadcast television and broadcast radio. Um, And, you know, you're and we might need to describe the difference between cable and broadcast for our younger listeners who probably don't get the dichotomy, you know, just because they've always operated in a system where they kind of function in the same way, yeah, where they don't even have cable packages. <laughs> exactly. We're on the same wavelength. But I was just going to say that, you know, even though I'm a, a broadcast lawyer and I work for a broadcast network, when I was trying to explain to my kids at one point, um, you know, the difference between broadcast uh, ABC uh, television and, and something else, they were like, oh, is that Netflix? No, it's not Netflix. Oh, is that streaming? No, it's not streaming. Oh, is that on demand? You know, in a world in which we, and they were all the right questions. It's just that, you know, people are not only, their feelings about language have changed, but they're they're platform agnostic now. Um, You know, people just watch whatever they want, whenever they want it, um, on their phones, wherever they're going. And that's great in, in most ways, but it, it's, it, it certainly, um, I think makes the distinction between broadcast and, uh, and other, um, uh, media, you know, historic, historical anomaly that should be changed. Unfortunately, when this case, um, when the Fox case, um, uh, came up, uh, to the Supreme court, uh, the, the various, um, fleeting expletive cases that, uh, came up with Bono and, um, Nicole Ritchie and Cher cursing and in conjunction at the same time with the Janet Jackson Nipplegate, um, scandal. Um, you know, really it was only Ginsburg at the time who said, let's reevaluate this. Uh, you know, they, they overturned, uh, the, or they stopped the FCC's fines, um, at, at the time as saying that there hadn't been enough notice, but then Justice Roberts sort of wags a finger like a scold parent and says, but now you're on notice that even fleeting expletives and fleeting nudity can be fined under any circumstances. Uh, so um, we have a... Um, a Is that, are, those enfor- are those enforced? You know, I, I, I think about the FCC now and, and, you know, especially under Ajit Pai, who it's my understanding is fairly good on these um, 
First Amendment issues, free speech issues. I mean, it, enforcement is discretionary, of course. Enforcement is discretionary. And one of the you know great ironies is that uh, today, how many people complained uh, about an incident? I think, you know, certainly in the Janet Jackson case, um, uh, there was, you know, Many, many complaints, although some of them were, uh, a large portion of them were from form letters from advocacy groups, but, um, you know, vast number of complaints. Um, in the Carlin case, um, you know, that led to this regime, we had one man. The, the FCC received one complaint um, by this guy who was not just some random father, but it was part of an advocacy group called Morality and Media, um, was claiming his young son was offended by um, Carlin. And in fact, his son was going off to... Um, check out Yale with him that day. So really not some um, innocent babe. Um, and so, um, but uh, so yes, you are absolutely right that um, enforcement is a discretionary. There has been uh, very little um, enforcement. There was one ish, uh, incident with a local uh, TV station had um, been profiling a former adult film actress who I think now was a um, uh, an EMT and it was talking about the good work she did. And they mentioned some past pornography she had been involved in and in showing the cover which was tame or tame enough um there was some uh, errant ad for different pornography in the corner that showed male genitalia um and um it was on screen for some very brief seconds of time um and that local station was fined and i think that's the only significant um fine in that regard however that doesn't mean that the um you know, part of the reason that there's not fines um, is because there is a real concern about receiving these enormous fines. These yeah, there's a chilling fines. effect. So absolutely. Um, so uh, this is, you know, I talk about the rights you have in the book and, and one of the only right I, uh, that I focus on that we don't have is that there is no right to curse on broadcast television or radio. I want to turn now to kind of how you begin the book, at least in the first paragraph, which is talking about student speech rights. You have two children, as you reveal in the book. And in 2018, there was, of course, a school shooting in Parkland at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And in the wake of that, there was a lot of student activism uh, around gun control, including a nationwide student walkout from their classes uh, uh, to protest. And there were a lot of questions at the time regarding the rights of students to leave their classes in, in protest. And you address this a little bit in the book and I'll ask the question to you squarely, did they have the right to walk out? Uh, so the answer is no. Um, you know, walkouts, um, you, you know, let's start with the, the, the happier news, um, which is that, um, thanks to a middle school student, um, named Mary Beth Tinker and a friend and her brother, um, who wore a black armband, uh, during the Vietnam war to protest the war, um, in, uh, uh, in Iowa, in her, her middle school, um, that led to a transformative victory for student speech, the first recognition by the court that students don't lose their right to freedom of speech as they pass through the, the schoolhouse gates. Um, and I, I talk about that extensively and, and her fascinating um, involvement, both as a, a student activist and then supporting the um, 
students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, High School um, many years later in another sort of intriguing twist. But um, but uh, the right um, has been narrowed, and and what it means really is that you have a right to um, non-disruptive protest. Uh, it can't just be a fear of disruption. That's not enough. There has to be some reasonable belief um, of concrete disruption. And, and I think all courts would find that if you're actually walking out of school, uh, that you would be um, disrupting your education, but also uh, potentially the education of others. However, it would be an act of civil do- disobedience. In in, even even in an act of, of oh, sorry, yes. So it would be an act of civil disobedience. That's that's right. You would be you would be um, you know sort of breaking the rules um, to make an important point. Uh, however, what is very important to um, note, and, and this came up with the national school walkout controversies. Um, Schools can't punish you more because you're walking out for protesting something um, than if you were walking out because you want to go to the mall. Um, so, and, and there definitely did seem to be um, a lot of examples of um, threats of viewpoint discrimination that, uh, particularly in more conservative towns where um, uh, gun uh gun control laws are, are looked on with disfavor or gun control advocacy is, um, is not popular. Um, it seemed like there was going to be a lot of punishment of students to a greater degree than they would have if they had just been, um, un, an unexcused absence. So you do. Yeah. You saw that right too. And, and, and more, and more, uh, liberal jurisdictions where there seemed to be sort sort of tacit support for the walkouts. And then you had minority, you know, minority students, minority here numerically, not demographically, who, uh, were opposed to gun control measures who seemed to uh, balk at what they seemed to, to to think was tacit support for them and and not for for their individual protests. So yeah, you need to avoid the viewpoint discrimination in any disciplinary measures that you hand down. That's right, but I I think that the you know. Sometimes we're talking about, you know, what is the answer to this question? And I try very hard in the book to actually answer people's questions. Um, you know, uh, my father was an economist and he, he talked always about people always say, uh, I think Truman wanted a one-handed economist because somebody always says on the one hand this, on the other hand that. So I, I do try and give actual clear-cut answers. But I think that the bigger and the answer to can you walk out uh, and be punished uh, you know, will you be punished if, if you walk out? Is that constitutionally permissible? Yes, it is constitutionally permissible to, yeah. to uh, punish people for walkouts. But I think the bigger question is, you know, uh, particularly today with so many movements um, for um, uh, against gun, uh, gun violence, for climate uh, ac- um, action uh, like Greta Thunberg's um, uh, Fridays um, uh, for the future um, with uh, Black Lives Matter, that we are seeing a, an un- Unprecedented um, resurgence of student activism, unprecedented since the since the sixties um, and the civil rights movement, um, and that students do need to know that they have, they absolutely do have rights um, in um, in school, and that you do not lose your free speech rights because um, I, I do believe that student led free speech movements uh, are the not only the future, uh, literally, but are the real hope of a continuing robust free speech. Um, framework for uh, as we go ahead. And we actually have a student free speech case that just got accepted by the Supreme Court and we'll hopefully hear oral arguments later this year. It's the uh, Mahanoy case uh, involving a cheerleader who or a cheerleader who was upset with decisions made and the cheerleading program protested them in a, a you know 
some might call it vulgar way outside of school. And the question before the court, as I understand it, is whether that that uh, protest outside of school school uh, reached the substantial disruption that uh, Tinker kind of carved out. And I should say, and you probably know more about this than I do, but since the Tinker case, unfortunately, the court has narrowed uh, what it seems what it what it had said in the Tinker case and allowed for more things to be considered. Um, substantial disruption we think here about Bethel v. Frazier, Hazelwood, and, and that line of cases. Yes. Well, so in those in those line of cases, basically, the court said student newspapers could be censored because it was actually the administrator's speech rather than the student's speech, since they were, in effect, the publishers. Um, they said vulgar language could be censored uh, or could be stopped by the, um, the school when some kid gave a nomination speech for student government and kept using some very weak double entendres. Um, <laughs> and then the bong hits for Jesus case, a guy just put up a nonsensical sign. Um, That's outside. Morse v. Frederick. Yeah. yeah. Um, where he, um, you know, wanted to cause a stir at a, you know, Olympic parade. Um, and the court said that, you know, it, advocacy of illegal action essentially uh, could be, um, uh, or illegal, you know, activity could be, um, could be stopped by the court, but I am actually more uh, up until the Supreme Court, the, the Snapchat case. Uh, I was um, still believing very strongly that um, their the court had still enabled there to be a robust free expression um, framework for students. What's so disturbing about the case you bring up is that it, it's sort of the the parallel of Tinker. In Tinker, um, we have the court saying that students don't lose their rights um, when they're inside the schoolhouse gate. Here, this woman, a young woman, was outside um, school, not during class time, on Snapchat, um, and she, her speech is trying to be curtailed by the administrators um, of the school. So it's not that she's losing her free speech rights um, when she goes through the schoolhouse gates. It's that she's losing her free speech rights because of her identity as a student, uh, because of her enrollment um, and participation in, in school activities. Uh, and that seems very disturbing. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm nervous about where the court is going to go with that. But, you know, the only way we can understand whatever the court's decision is, is a closer look back at, at Tinker. Yeah, yeah. The the case involved, as I mentioned earlier, a cheerleader, but she was protesting on Snapchat the fact that she failed to make the varsity cheerleading squad and would remain on the junior varsity squad. And she posted a picture of her with, you know, giving the middle finger on Snapchat. Snapchat, of course, uh, is ephemeral by design, meaning that you can only see the snap uh, for a certain period of time, but a, another student had taken a screenshot of it, shared it with the mothers, got the school got a hold of it, and the school suspended the student from cheerleading for a year, saying that the punishment was needed to, quote, avoid chaos and maintain, quote, a team-like environment. And the student won in the, in a, in the appeals court. And it's a strong decision, and, and I think absolutely the appeals court has rightly decided. You know, one of the things that's ironic about that is I also talk about flipping off the president. So the idea do. that you can't <laughs> flip off um, your school administrators when you're uh, angry about not getting uh, on a team. Um, we talk about Julie, uh, I talk about in the book, Julie Briskman, who's the woman who, you know, the bird that was heard around the world, she flipped off uh, Trump's motorcade. Um, and then that a photo of that went viral. She was fired from her 
her job. And I talk about how there is a right um, to offend. Um, and the, the original key Supreme Court case about that is Cohen versus California, um, where the uh, protester um, went. You can through. swear on this podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he, thank you. Um, it's not, it's not uh, regulated by the FCC because we're not on broadcast radio. Um, yes, he wore a jacket that said, fuck the draft. Um, uh, in the courthouse, uh, and that led to the uh, you know wonderful language that one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. You have this right to uh, offend. Um, so there, there is a right um, to flip off the president. There is a right um, to uh, curse in a courtroom, and there absolutely should be a right for a student uh, to curse um, in a nonviolent, non-disruptive way uh, outside of, of class. It, it seems like it should be a, a slam dunk victory, but, um, but we'll see. I want to turn now to the uh, Colin Kaepernick's protests on the field during the um, during the national anthem. You know, now this was like 2016, 2017. He was taking a knee uh, during the national anthem and was essentially blacklisted from the NFL and remains blacklisted from the NFL. It seems strange now to think that that happened, given that you turn on an NFL game now and they have uh, Black Lives Matter in the end zones, each of the players wears a, a helmet that often is emblazoned with some uh, social justice message behind it. But at the time, this was a huge controversy. The president weighed into it. Uh, as I said, Colin Kaepernick was kind of blackballed from the league. And there was a discussion as to whether the, uh, Colin Kaepernick had a free speech right to do this. So I'll put the question to you. Did he? Well, uh, this is one of those areas where it's complicated. So this, the short answer is no, because employers, because First Amendment rights essentially always involve the government or state actors and private employers are allowed to discipline or, or uh, fire employees um, for the, their expression that they don't like. But I don't think the story uh, ends there. And, you know, you, you bring up that I, I think that the, the take a knee protests are the most important protests um, of our time um, in, in terms of free speech uh, and what they mean, um, both in terms of controversy and in terms of our actual rights. Um, and I think that the Kaepernick story is instructive in, in two ways. One sort of um, free speech values oriented and one very practical. Uh, and the, the free speech values is we are talking about, you know, the right um, not to speak, the right to not uh, have a message compelled to us. And, and that comes um, from a case uh, called Barnett, uh, in which Jehovah Witness school children uh, refused to pledge allegiance to the flag during uh, World War II because they believed it was a form of um, pledging to, uh, to idols, uh, essentially, and, and felt it violated uh, their religion. I should note here, you have, uh, you have a very interesting historical note that I wasn't aware of, that it was up until World War II, that we started putting our hands over our hearts when we do the pledge of a pledge of allegiance. Prior to that, we used to hold our hands up, almost kind of like a Nazi salute, except our palm was up and our instead of our palm being down. And it was during World War II, of course, because of the specter of Nazism, that the the gesture was changed to the hand over the heart. I didn't know that, and I found that fascinating. 
Yeah, th- there are photos that are amazing of, you know, rooms full of school children and, it, for, you know, and they clearly look like American school children. And it, it, you, you you think, oh, my God, are they all like, are they all, all swearing Heil Hitler? Um, because their hands are up, as you say, straightforward, but with their palm, if you look closely, the, the palm is up. Uh, yeah, that changed um, during World War II out of sort of embarrassment, that, uh, how similar um, the gesture was to the, the fascists we were fighting. Um, but I, I think it's also just another, not only is it a fascinating historical anecdote, but it shows how much patriotism and the perceptions of patriotism can turn on a dime. You know, this is the only gesture we can do. It's the absolute right thing. If you don't do it, you're unpatriotic. Oh, but we're actually going to change it right now because now we've changed our perception of that. So, you know, the Barnett case was another example of, of changing perception. The, the court found that just as there was a right to speak, that there was a right not to speak, that the government couldn't force you to adhere to a message that you don't agree with. And, you know, very memorably, Justice Jackson said, if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it's that no official high or petty can prescribe which shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. You know, it's just beautiful language that this is the fixed star in our constitutional constellation installation of ideas that we cannot force people to uh, agree with a message that they don't have in their hearts. And and absolutely a parallel to what Kaepernick was uh, saying um, in in, um, framework, as well as his important message about violence against Black communities from the police and others. Um, so, so that's the that's the emotional and theoretical free speech issue. But the very practical free speech issue is that while Kaepernick was not protected um, by the mistreatment by the NFL, student athletes, um, any student athletes at public universities or public high schools, um, do have um, the right to take a knee. And if the administrators of those um, institutions seek to stop them for doing that, Barnett squarely protects them. Um, and so uh, it is not just a case um, of, well, athletes in theory have this right. Student athletes absolutely have um, that protection. And thanks to these school children from World War II. Uh, I, I found it interesting that uh, you note in your book that it was really only in 2009 that NFL teams started uh, joining uh, the crowd on the sidelines for the national anthem. Prior to that, it was it wasn't always the case that the NFL teams would even be out there uh, during the national anthem. Yes, uh, which, is, which is another weakness of their argument in disciplining um, them. And while they do have a a free speech right uh, or have a, uh, they are allowed to. Um, stop their employees from doing speech that they don't like. I, I am not taking an opinion on whether um, there was collusion as uh, Kaepernick's uh, lawsuit, um, which settled, uh, everyone thinks, sort of in his favor, although it's confidential. Um, you know, the, that's a, that's a non-First uh, Amendment uh, issue. Um, but I, I think, and I was able to, the book was going to press as, um, as uh, Black Lives Matter resurgence was happening, and, I, and some of the NFL's quasi-apologies after the fact were coming out. But I, I do point out that, um, you know, these apologies to me ring, um, uh, and to other commentators like Howard Bryant, who speaks very eloquently in, in, on ESPN.com and other places in his books, um, that these, you know, until there is 
recompense um, for Kaepernick until they they mention uh, Goodell mentions um, Kaepernick by name in an apology. I, I feel like he has violated uh, the spirit of, of the First Amendment in an egregious way. Good, the, the NFL has uh, has violated um, that spirit in an egregious way. Yes, of course. Uh, somewhat similarly, social media companies, there's a big debate right now. We could probably spend a whole podcast talking about the various free speech de- debates surrounding uh, tech companies and social media companies, but these are also private entities and they can set up terms of use or terms of service and create communities around the set of values that they uh, want to create their communities around. And that's actually their First Amendment right to do so as well. But I often hear from listeners who are very concerned about how these social media companies enforce uh, their terms of service or enforce their community standards. So do you have any concerns surrounding how these companies are approaching so-called hate speech, fake news, uh, or even in, in the case of Twitter or Facebook, the refusal to host or ban, um, you know, government officials or former government officials like President Donald Trump. Right. Well, in, in um, talking with people uh, about my book, this is definitely the number one issue that, that people keep bringing up. And uh, Ian, and, I get it all the time, yeah. all the time from family, and, from uh, friends. And it's something that um, I, I made a point of addressing um, in, in the last chapter of my book. Um, the first time uh, the court ever addressed the issue of uh, social media speech does not come until 2017 in a case called Packingham, um, which finds that individuals, even a sex offender, um, have a right to access social media, that to deny um, people access to any kind of series of social media platforms um, is essentially taking away too vital a component of speech in the modern era. So that's on the but one that's, hand. that was the government taking that's away the government. their rights. Exactly. So that's on the one hand. But then back to your earlier point, I, I think, I know you know this, but I think it's important for um, listeners to, to understand that um, as you were referencing, all social media platforms are private entities. And so they do not have to abide by the First Amendment at all. You know, First Amendment, the text says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So that applies to the federal government and the states, but not private companies. So Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they're not government actors. They can restrict people's speech all they want. They can kick people off their platforms. They can restrict speech based on its message. They can refuse to accept ads from whomever they choose. And that these are editorial decisions that reflect the free speech rights of the social media companies themselves. So this raises a host of political and social issues, um, but they are not going to be found by courts to be unconstitutional violations of the First Amendment. Twitter and all the other platforms are 100% within their uh, constitutional right um, or are, are 100% able to without fear of uh, any constitutional uh, limits um, to deplatform Trump. Government actors have to follow the First Amendment, but private companies and private uh, individuals don't. So that is, uh, I think, a core uh, set of um, First Amendment law and First Amendment uh, issues that people need to uh, understand as a starting point. But I, but then to the harder part of your question, I am 
I don't think that means that we need to throw up our hands and go, okay, well, social media companies can do whatever they want. I guess the First Amendment doesn't save us here um, because I think we should advocate, um, uh, you know, depending on your, your belief system, but advocate for change um, in the way social media companies um, manage their content. And certainly the, the lack of transparency is, is a glaringly obvious uh, flaw in their current systems. But, um, but the First Amendment isn't the tool to fix those problems, in my opinion. I want to close here by asking you uh, about shouting fire in a crowded theater. You address this in your book as one of the kind of cop-outs for First Amendment protection and often a misunderstood one. Can you give us the history around it and why it is usually wrong (laughs) when people cite shouting fire in a crowded theater as a way to kind of justify censorship? Yes. So this is a personal bugaboo of mine, and I'm glad to be able to um, to shout it to the rooftops. You know, whenever, as you say, whenever anyone um, wants to bring about um, speech restrictions or, or um, restrictions on the press, they always say, well, you know, you, can sh- you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, um, which is uh, an egregious, um, sometimes intentional, sometimes um, just a, a unknowing um, mistake. Um, the actual language from Justice Holmes is that you can't falsely shout cry, uh, fire in a crowded theater and cause a panic. So the two elements that are crucial to when we should uh, think about the possibility of restricting speech are falsity uh, and, and harm. Um, you know, of course, you can shout fire in a crowded theater. If there's a fire, you should get a medal for um, shouting mm-hmm. fire in a crowded theater. And you should also shout fire in a crowded theater if you smell smoke and it turns out it's not smoke. It's just, a, you know, an effect of what's on the stage. Um, you know, if no, if you just yell fire, and then the usher comes out and goes, no, everything's okay. You shouldn't be penalized for that. We don't want to have a d- deterrent for people to um, call out um, when they, you know, they should say something when they see something. So um, so this is, I, I think, um, you know, I said, if there's one thing you learned from my book, and now if there's one thing you learned from our podcast discussion today, um, it's that, you know, that phrase is misused all the time. And I think it's often intentionally misused to say like, well, since there are limits on speech, we can limit this speech. And yes, of course, um, I am not a free speech absolutist. The Supreme Court is um, um, over the years and, and even as constituted today are not free speech absolutists. Absolutely. There are many different types of restrictions that we have on speech and those are constitutionally permissible. And I would say most of them are socially acceptable uh, as well. But um, but um, we should not begin the idea that, oh, well, since some limits are on speech are allowed, every limit is OK. Uh, and I think the, the false fire analogy is, is a real uh, tool for uh, misrepresenting what our real rights are. Well, we started this podcast talking about your theater background and we ended it with your theater bugaboo. Uh, <laughs> Ian, it's been a great pleasure. The book is The Fight for Free Speech, 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms, and it's out this week. Ian, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on it. It's one of my favorite programs. Thank you. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We also take email feedback at speak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.